When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. On a late September morning in 2015, I met Senator Bernie Sanders at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago for the ride to an appearance he would make at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. We'd arranged to record the first ever episode of The Axe Files on that ride, which we did, but only after some negotiation to get the progressive lion to reluctantly agree to board the Mercedes RV we'd rented for the occasion. Next week, we'll be airing the 500th episode of The Axe Files. Thank you to all you listeners who've joined me on that journey. Now to set the stage for the 500th, we wanted to take a trip down memory lane to episode number one. So here's that conversation with Bernie Sanders. Let me set the stage here. Sure. We're, uh, we're in a van hurtling toward uh, the University of Chicago for an event at the Rockefeller Chapel, an edifice that was built as a monument to the greatest monopolist, one of the icons of the Gilded Age, the last Gilded Age, uh, John D. Rockefeller. And we're going there with Senator Bernie Sanders, the bane of the billionaires, the hot poker up the wazoos of the plutocrats. Uh, Senator, I, I hope... This doesn't make you uncomfortable appearing in Rockefeller Chapel. No, I, not at all. That's, uh, I went to the University of Chicago and I'm just thinking that is exactly the building in which I graduated. That's where they hold yeah. graduation ceremonies. Yeah. I oh, know the building well. Although this time the, I, I, I have fears of a phantom of the opera type thing where the organ starts playing and we hear the ghost of Rockefeller. <laughs> if, if we do, we'll get you out of the building quickly. Um, Talk to me about the University of Chicago. I, you know, in doing, in doing research for this chat, I found a photo of a tall, lanky, dark-haired fellow leading a sit-in. Uh, I, I don't want to overdo the research part. It's actually on your Wikipedia page. But uh, what? tell me about that. Tell well, me about what, what you were doing. What that was about is in the early 60s when I was at the University of Chicago. Uh, it turned out that the university owned segregated housing. Uh, and I was part of a group called the Congress on Racial Equality Corps, which at that point was one of the most significant civil rights groups in the country. And what we did is we sent uh, couples in. Uh, we would send the black couple in, and then we'd send a few hours later a white couple in to university-owned housing. And what would happen is uh, the black couple was told that, sorry, there were just no apartments available. And then two hours later, suddenly the very same apartments became available for the white uh, couple. Uh, and all of that ended up with a uh, sit-in demonstration uh, at the administration office. First sit-in, I'm told, ever at the University of Chicago. Uh, that is my understanding. Uh, and um, 
So that was significant and I think paved the way for the significant improvement of University of Chicago's housing policies. Uh, later on, I and, and a number of other people also became involved in the issue of segregated uh, schools uh, in Chicago. Uh, and we were involved in some demonstrations on that. But uh, yeah, let me ask you about that. Talk about Chicago at that time. What was Chicago like? It was in the peak of the daily machine. Right. Um, what you so you got thoroughly engaged in the I would say thoroughly engaged, but uh, you know, I did become engaged. And, and I think what I'll mention to the students today is that for me at least, um, I learned as much, if not more, off campus than I did on campus. I, I was a student there, I would say the same. It was at your experience as well, yeah. <clears throat> so off campus, I became involved in the civil rights movement and the peace movement. Uh, learned a lot about democratic socialism. So it sounds like you spent more time at, uh, outside the classroom than inside. Well, uh, let's be honest and acknowledge <laughs> that I was not one of the best students that the University of Chicago ever had. We've let parallel live. Uh, <laughs> I'm in that same category. In fact, we have led parallel lives because my father was an immigrant from uh, Eastern Europe. He fled the pogroms, your father, the Holocaust. Uh, I grew up in New York City, went through the New York City public schools. I grew up in that very kind of uh, left uh, activism, uh, you know, period in New York City. Tell me about how your experience is back there. Because you didn't, you didn't just arrive out of the womb as a democratic socialist. You, 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 maybe you did. Well, I'll tell you, uh, my family, you know, the neighborhood that we grew up in, I suspect was 90% Democrat. I don't know if people voted Republican, but, uh, my family was not political. My brother introduced me to a lot. He was, got involved, uh, in the young Democrats at Brooklyn college and would drag me out when he had the baby sitting, would drag me out for meetings. Uh, so I learned a lot from him. He brought books into a house, which did not have a lot of books. Um, what'd your dad do? My father was a paint salesman who had left Poland at the age of 17, uh, dropped out of high school. My mom graduated high school and raised uh, the two kids. So we grew up in a, in a three and a half room rent controlled apartment in, in Brooklyn, uh, in a pretty solidly lower middle class name. Yeah, I grew up at Stuyvesant town. So that half to the same, sort of the same deal. So when, when you. When you got to the University of Chicago, were you already like deeply interested in social justice issues, politics? I wouldn't say deeply interested. I would say instinctually interested, you know, uh, Juan, that is a damn good question, David. And I've never figured out the answer to that, you know, not just for me, but for anybody. Yeah. But you know, as a kid, I never liked to see the big guys pick on the little kids. You know how that happens, the schoolyard, all that stuff. So I kind of had an instinct for whatever reason. Uh, against, you know, powerful people pushing around less powerful people. But certainly that was not honed in any intellectual way at all. I really did not know a whole lot. Uh, and at the University of Chicago, I think it's fair to say a lot of my ideas developed in class, off campus, uh, talking and learning from a lot. Just as a side, you were a bit of an athlete back. Yep. And a yep. baseball fan too? Yep. Dodgers fan? Yep. Of course, the Dodgers. What, what kind of question? <laughs> We're all big in Brooklyn. No. 
You well, you, my my uh, my dad, when he first got here as an immigrant, the first thing he did was learn how to play baseball, play with Hank Greenberg, oh, Sam Wiles wow. of the Browns. Wow. Uh, and uh, so we were always at the ballpark. But he with what well, pilgrims or we well, well we started there, but then Shay up uh, Shay that, when the that's because I was a little bit uh, younger, but we would but and we would go to Yankee Stadium. But my father always used to you'll I tell you because you'll appreciate it. We refer to the Yankees as the portrait of corporate privilege. Well, it, it, it's, it's funny. Um, I mean, when the discussion began about the Brooklyn Dodgers were an enormously important institution to Brooklyn, going far beyond athletics and baseball, they were part of the fabric of our society. And it was when people talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers possibly moving, people didn't understand, kids didn't understand. What does that mean? They are the Brooklyn Dodgers. They are owned by the people of Brooklyn. How could it possibly be that somebody can move them? We really did not understand that concept. And, uh, you know, in Brooklyn at that time, uh, they would talk about some of the most hated figures uh, of the period. And they were people, they would talk about uh, Hitler, Stalin, and Walter O'Malley, <laughs> uh, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Walter O'Malley, of course, being the owner of the Dodgers who the, the, shipped them off to L.A. Right. Yeah. Is that what turned you against corp, big corporate, the uh, <laughs> well, Dodgers movie? No, I wouldn't say that was the only thing, but, uh, <laughs> no, that was, that was a brutal act, which impacted Brooklyn in a very significant way. Now, getting back to Chicago in the sixties, you were involved in SNCC, you were involved in a lot of- Not SNCC, we were involved in core, and what we did is we worked, you know, we mostly focused on local issues, but we provided modest financial support to our brothers and sisters in the South, people like John Brewer, six And, uh, in fact, you went to the March on Washington. Fifth. Yes, I did. So you heard Dr. King. Yeah, what was that, I think. What was your, do you remember that at all? Oh, of course I know. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment of uh, seeing so many people. Uh, and obviously King was a powering figure. Uh, and the whole day, you know, what, the day that I will never forget it was extraordinary. Now, the, the, as the 60s evolved, the war became big issue. Um, were you, uh, did your activism uh, move into the anti-war space? Yep. yep. Uh, not a whole lot. I wasn't the most active uh, anti-war activist, but I certainly was very, very opposed uh, to the war in Vietnam and uh, went to more than one demonstration proposition. And you applied for conscientious objector status back then. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Did that, did you get it? No, what ended up happening at, at that point, at least the process was rather prolonged. Uh, and what ended up happening is by the time it was finished, I was over the age of which would be draft. Uh, do you can, did you consider yourself a conscientious objector then? Because the status, you know, is about war generally and can't say I oppose this war. We'd have to say I oppose all war. Well, but my view was at that point is that needless to say, I thought that war uh, should be the last resort. I was very, very much opposed to the war in the Vietnam. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question about this because you're suddenly now a very hot candidate for president of the United States. Uh, if you were elected president of the United States, you would be the commander in chief. Uh, how does, how does that square with your, your, your views? 
your views that were formulated back then and your views that, that you have now? Well, it squares in the sense. Uh, I voted against the war in Iraq. Uh, after listening to what Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and others had to say. Gulf Wars, right? You voted against the Gulf War as well? Yes, I voted against the first Gulf War. That's right. Uh, but in the war in Iraq, after listening to what these guys had to say, I concluded that they were not telling the truth. And if you go to my website or just go to YouTube and find the concerns that I had back in 2002, 2003, sadly enough, yeah. much of the, many of the concerns that I have turned out to be true. Having said that, I voted for the war in Afghanistan because I thought uh, that uh, Bin Laden had to be brought to justice. And obviously, the government of Afghanistan, the Taliban, were not cooperating. I voted when President Clinton uh, did his best to try to stop the ethnic cleansing uh, that was going on in Kosovo. So my view is that a great nation like ours uh, should be prepared to use force, but it should be the last resort. I strongly support what the president is today trying to do in Iran, stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, but do it without going to war. So we have a military. That military may well have to be used on certain occasions. But I am the former chairman of the Senate Veterans Committee, and I have learned about the cost of war in a way that many people do not fully appreciate, the kind of suffering that those wars have brought about. So, yes, we have got to be prepared to use military force but it should be the last resort. I got to tell you something, David. I get really amazed and sad uh, to hear many of my Republican colleagues rather blithely, you know, talk about, oh, we're against this agreement uh, with Iran and we always have the military option. It's not going to be their kids getting killed in those wars. Uh, and I think, again, war, military action is always an option. It could be the last option. You know, one of the reasons that we all seem sort of isolated is you sort of hit to this from, the, the cost of these decisions is that 1% of That's the population right. that is ends right. up fighting the war. Right. Should, should there be a draft? Should no. there be some sort of national service that requires the burden to be shared? No, I don't. Um, no, I'm not in favor of the draft. But just in terms of the cost of war, uh, many people are aware that we lost 6,700 brave Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, that many came home with our legs and arms and eyesight. What many people do not know is that some 500,000 came home with post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. And these are life-altering diseases, not easily cured, which means that tens and tens of thousands of families have suffered as a result of that war. Divorce rate, very, very high. Children impacting suicide rate off the chart. That is the cost of war. And before people talk about, oh, well, war is, you know, we can go to war, understand what that means. Yeah, I sat with the president as he made some of these decisions to send troops into battle, and also when he got when he went and greeted uh, uh, coffins on on return at Dover. And I I don't think there, there's by by far those were the most sobering moments. Are you prepared to make those kinds of yes. decisions and deal with that? Do you think about that? Sure. Look, it's uh, this is a very dangerous and crazy world. We look at ISIS, uh, we look at Al-Qaeda, we look at the horrors uh, every single day. Uh, and, you know, we have a military for a purpose. Uh, we are in coalition with other countries. And by the way, I believe we have got to strengthen those coalitions. I'm not a great fan of American unilateral action. Uh, I think we should be working as closely as possible with our allies in, in countries in the Gulf region. Uh, but as I said, 
Uh, we have a military for a reason. We are the most powerful military on the world. And if it is necessary to use our military, I certainly be prepared absolutely to do that. Let me just return to the narrative of your, uh, of your life a little bit. In the seventies, you were kind of a polemicist in Vermont and, uh, you, uh, you ran for office four times under the, the, the banner of the Liberty Union Party. What was the Liberty Union Party? Liberty Union Party was a third party, uh, in the state outside of the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, and in fact, um, it was a party, uh, that came around, very small party, uh, that focused primarily on economic issues and on, um, uh, the war in Vietnam. And those were the two main, uh, motivating factors. Uh, you know, it's a party that had no money. Uh, uh, I suspect raised at most a few thousand dollars, maybe not even that, and did not do any advertising or anything, but it, it, I enjoyed my participation in it. You must have. You did it a lot. I did it. I ran for uh, <laughs> I ran for the Senate, and I got two percent. Then I ran for governor, and I got one percent. And then I ran for the Senate again against Pat Leahy, and I got four percent. And I ran for governor against six. I got six percent. That you was figured a, if you ran long enough, you could add up all those numbers and get to a majority. Yeah, I, that, somebody <laughs> told me that's the way it worked, but I turned out not to be not to be accurate. But then what happened is I kind of you know gave up on that. Back in then in 1981. Uh, some, you know, how people often say people come up to you. This was true. Actually, people did. They said, you know, you got a shot to become mayor of the city of Burlington because you did pretty well, uh, in certain of the wards in, uh, Burlington. And I ran as an independent, uh, not as a third party. You've never run as a Democrat before, have you? This is like a new thing for you. That's right. I, <laughs> I have won the Democratic primary in the state. That's true. But I have never run as a Democrat. And, um. So I won as an independent, uh, by, uh, 10 votes, uh, and won three more elections. And I'm very proud of the role that we played in bringing people together in the city of Burlington. And I think most people would acknowledge that we helped transform that city and making it to one of the more livable, beautiful. 10 votes. So did you, did you learn this from the, uh, daily tradition here in Chicago of running for mayor that you, no, well, you squeezed that way you needed? We weren't the ones who were, who were counting those ballots. It was <laughs> the other side. Uh, so uh, what did you learn from that? What better I learned a lot. being mayor? Well, I learned a whole lot and it's kind of shaped my more practical political experience. And what I learned is, and the way we won that is by coalition politics. That's a very old fashioned concept, you see. What politics today is about is raising a whole lot of money, hiring consultants, and putting ads on television. That's not hey, the way. Hey, I used to make those ads. All right, I know. <laughs> Great people, but nonetheless. <laughs> uh, what we did is brought people in the community together. We brought the unions. We brought women who really did not have much of a role in city government. We brought young people. We brought neighborhood organizations. We brought low income organizations. Uh, and we really did coalition politics and we took on the city's machine. Uh, no, there was a machine in Burlington. Yeah, there was a machine. Absolutely. It was a machine. <laughs> and nobody, but nobody, uh, David, you would have been a written person if you had a bet on me winning that election. Nobody, but nobody thought that it was possible. And we did. And I'll tell you something else that I learned, uh, not only about coalition politics, about working with groups like environmental groups, who had their concerns and the Burlington Patrolman's Association, the Policeman's Union, we brought them all together. I'd say, okay, look, we disagree on this, that, and the other thing. But basically, on the major issues facing our city, we are on the same side. And that is the same principle I bring into this campaign. But I'll tell you something else. Between the election, we have, at that point, elections every two years. 
and I won in 1981. When I ran for re-election in 1983, we almost doubled the voter turnout. Almost doubled the voter turnout. Why was that? Because we ran a city which paid... You were giving away things, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, something like that. Mostly because we paid attention to working class wards and lower income people. And those people said, you know what? Actually, Bernie and the government are doing something for me. We're going to participate. We almost doubled voter turnout. And when we talk about the problems facing this country today and the dismal, dismal, dismal turnout we had in the uh, midterm elections mm-hmm. last November, I think people are giving giving up on government. They don't believe government represents their interests. They say, why do I want to participate in this charade? All right, not, not relevant to me. And what we have got to do is make government relevant to people. We've got to deliver for working people, for lower income people, for young people. And when we do that, we create this relationship of working together, voter turnout goes up. And when voter turnout goes up, Democrats win. Republicans win when voter turnout goes down. So I did learn a lot being mayor of the city. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. And then you went on to Congress, and you've been there for 25 years. Yeah. In these experiences, what have you learned about the gap between, you know, Mario Cuomo said you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Uh, What have you learned about the gap between uh, campaigning and governing and what governing demands? Well, what I have learned is, uh, and especially true in the last several months as I've been running around the country, just come back from Iowa. Uh, is the reality as perceived by ordinary people in throughout America is a very, very, very different reality that is perceived inside the Beltway. The inside the Beltway is way, way, way out of touch with where the American people are. So, for example, on the issues that I campaign on, which would be seen as very, very radical, undoable, incomprehensible, within the United States Senate and among the American people. Oh, of course we should raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Oh, yes, there's something wrong when the United States is the only major country on earth that doesn't guarantee health care to all people. Oh, yes, no question. We should have paid family and medical leave. Yes, our trade policies have been a disaster and we need to reform them. Of course, public colleges and universities should be tuition-free. Of course, not a debate, the rich and large corporations should start paying their fair share of taxes. Out in the real world, people say, yeah, of course. Inside the Beltway, oh my God, these are radical, radical ideas. And the reason for that, obviously, is that what goes on inside the Beltway is heavily influenced by big money interest and corporations and large campaign donors. And my friend Gary Hart told me something years ago that I found uh, the most useful advice I ever got an admonition, which is just remember Washington's always the last to get the new. That's right. That's right. That is, is exactly right. And, and what this campaign is about is just picks up on, on Hart's point. And that is change will take place in America, not when, you know, John Bader or Mitch McConnell uh, wants to do something. Change will take place in America when tens of millions of people basically say enough is enough. This system is corrupt. The political system is corrupt. It is owned by the wealthy and the powerful. The economic system is corrupt. Virtually all of the new income and wealth is going to the top 1%. And we're going to change it. 
And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in terms of the fight for the $15 an hour minimum wage. That didn't come from the United States Congress, trust me. That came from young people who work at fast food restaurants who are saying, this is nonsense. We can't make it on seven and a quarter an hour. An hour. They're going out on the streets. And I've been proud to go out on the streets with them. And they're standing up. And then suddenly, other people say, well, these guys are right. And then you have Seattle voting to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And LA voting to raise the minimum wage to $15. And they're spreading all over the country. So change comes at the grassroots level. Uh, and that's what I believe. And that's what this campaign is about. Do you poll? Do you take? We have not done any polls up to now. Have you taken polls in your, in the past? Yes. When I ran in, uh, 2006, we ran against a very, very wealthy guy. One of the wealthiest guys, uh, in the state of Vermont. And we did poll and we may have polled previous to that. And what do you do? Do you, do you see these polls? Do you agree? What do you do with these polls? Well, mostly, uh, the poll in 2006, David, was not used, uh, to shape what I say. Because basically, I've been saying the same thing for 30 years. <laughs> I don't need the poll to tell me what to say. What the polls did help us on was we were being attacked with some very ugly 30-second negative ads. I've never won a negative ad in my life. How's that? Yeah. Well, that's it's pretty remarkable. Yes. In this day and age. You'll get through this whole campaign. That well, I surely hope so. I surely hope Let's so. Let's say yes or no, though. Well, it is my hope that I will never run a negative ad. I never have after all of these years, but I, you know. We'll see. Um, but let me just, yeah. let me just say what, what the, we did use the polling for is that to try to figure out how to respond, not with a negative ad, but you know, when you're being attacked every single day as being one of the worst human beings in the history of the world. Well, that's a pretty heavy charge. That was, that was the least <laughs> charge. It really, really got really negative. Um, but you know, uh, you know, so you've got to figure out which of those kinds of ugly comments actually resonate, uh, which do not, where you go from there. You know, but here's the thing, because um, I've been through, you know, I was part of a magical campaign in 2008. Yeah, and it was very much, it stirred some of the same kinds of hopes and expectations uh, that your campaign is. I remember looking out the window and arriving at events that were as large or maybe larger than the ones that you've experienced. And I remember uh, Barack Obama turning to me and saying, you know, it's going to be really hard to meet people's expectations because uh, the reality of governing is 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 harder than the than than, than sure. the uh, expect than the than the articulation of people's aspirations. So, and you must after twenty five years. Let me give you an example. I agree with you on single payer. Uh, I've have a, I have a child with a chronic illness. I have a very strong feeling about this. But if you did poll, what you would find is there's a, actually a great deal of ambivalence out in the country uh, about this. So that's why you were there. You and I were both there when we were fighting for uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act. Yep. And we couldn't get your all of your Democratic colleagues even to support a public option yes. within the Affordable Care Act. Right. So how do you, I understand, we came in with great momentum. It was like a, it would seem like a landmark election. And we ran into all those barriers. Well, let me. So, how how is under the Sanders administration? Okay. How is that going? Well, as you know, you know, I am personally very fond of Barack Obama. It but, sounds like a Trump thing. I like him a lot, but not not no. <laughs> uh, Obama came to Vermont in two thousand and six with huge turnout. 
uh, the campaign for me. I did my best in 2008, 2012 to get him uh, elected and reelected. But here is an area where he and I have a political disagreement. I mean, we disagree on a number of issues, but this is a political disagreement, a tactical disagreement. You were part of one of the great campaigns in American history, the brilliant campaign. What I think is, and you can argue, argue with me about this, is that a mistake that Barack Obama made, A, because he's a very decent guy, he thought he could walk in to Capitol Hill in the Oval Office and sit down with John Boehner and Mitch McConnell, the Republicans, say, look, I can't get it all, you can't get it all, let's work out something that's reasonable. Because he's a reasonable guy, he's a pretty rational guy. Well, as you and know, I expect you do know, these guys never had any intention of seriously negotiating or compromising. Their job from day one was to obstruct, okay? That's issue number one. And I think it took the president too long to fully appreciate. I think he's a better president today than he was four years ago, as a matter of fact, because he now understands that. But here's the second point where I have a difference in tactics with the president. I have no illusion, none, that fighting for a Medicare for all single-payer program, fighting for tuition-free public colleges and universities, fighting for paid family and medical leave, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure, progressive taxation. I don't have any illusion that I'm going to walk in, and I certainly hope it's not the case, but if there is a Republican House and a Republican Senate, that I'm going to walk in there and say, hey, guys, listen, I'd like you to work with me on raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour and ask your campaign donors to start paying their fair share of taxes. And by the way, tell the Koch brothers that we're going to trans- transition our economy away from fossil fuel. And I know you will agree with me on that because you're really smart guys. It ain't going to happen. I have no illusion about that. The only way that I believe that change takes place is when, and I say this not rhetorically, but, uh, but this is what I believe in my heart of hearts, is that tens of millions of people are going to have to stand up and be involved in the political process the day after the election not just the day before the election. What Obama did was, with your help and other people's help, run a brilliant campaign, a grassroots campaign. But I think that campaign has got to be maintained in an unprecedented way the day after the election and in terms of part of the governing process. I cannot do it alone. Barack Obama cannot do it alone. And I think that was a mistake that he made, which I hope not to repeat. A lot of the folks on the left were um, unhappy about the Affordable Care Act because it didn't a, a public option. They right. thought it was a betrayal. Uh, did you feel that way? You voted for it. I ended up voting for it with some hesitation. It's much too complicated for me and for the American people, by the way. I ended up voting for it after Harry Reid worked with me to put uh, $12 billion into community health centers all over this country, which now means that 4 million people have access in my state, 25% of the people in Vermont get their primary health care and their dental care, mental health counseling, and low-cost prescription drugs through community health centers, which, by the way, has been one of the real success stories of the Affordable yeah, Care Act. Yeah. Well, it doesn't get a lot of attention. And the president, by the way, was very, very uh, supportive uh, of that. But uh, my point is this. There are 15 million or more people in health right. care today who didn't have it. I run into them all the time. People who say, gee, this saved my life. Yes. Would it have been the right thing to say no uh, to helping those people uh, because it wasn't uh, 
it wasn't uh, fulsome enough. Well, it wasn't. I voted for it. So that I answered that question. Yes, but I mean, my point is, doesn't itself. governing require those kinds of decisions? Of course it does. Every single day. When you get elected to office, you know, the first thing you know is you're not going to get everything you want. Uh, and that you have to compromise. When I was in the House, in fact, there were some years where I got more amendments passed on the floor than anybody else in the House working with Republicans on issues where there was a commonality of interest. So, of course it does. But what I'm trying to say to you, David, is if you look at the world and you say, okay, I got a right-wing Congress and I'm a progressive president. All right, what do we do? That's one way to look at it. And you've got to look at that. Mm-hmm. But there's another reality is what happens if the views that I hold are supported by the vast majority of the American people and my Republican opponents' views are only supported by a small minority. That has got to be brought into the discussion as well. It does. But what if your views aren't held by a, a, a vast well, majority? Like uh, the, the single-payer issue, I, I think it makes total sense. Mo- the majority of American people don't think that. Then what do you think? Well, that's a good question. Let you do what you do. You've got to educate the American people and you do the best that you can do. But there are issues where, in terms of raising the minimum wage, majority of Republicans support that. Mm-hmm. There are issues where family and medical leave off the charts. There are issues where we have to ask the rich to start paying their fair share of taxes, widely supporting. So, yeah, I'm not saying that every position that I advocate has significant majority support. Most of them do. And where they don't, got to continue the fight by educating people and bringing people along. Now, I don't mean to be provocative in making this analogy, but... That- you know, you hear a lot from the other side, uh, the sort uh, you know, the Ted Cruz world, uh, that the problem with the Republicans is they've been too willing to compromise, that they have to stand on conservative principles, rally their base, put pressure on. And it sounds a little like the same argument, which is it's better to be pure than no, to no, be no, exactly. no, you didn't hear me say that. It's not what I said. What I said is that if you are good at politics and you have 70, 80% of the people behind you in issues like raising the minimum wage or rebuilding our infrastructure or family and medical leave, you should win those fights. Mm-hmm. And it's not good enough to sit down with Boehner and say, no, I can't support all. Okay, I guess we're not going to do it. Then your job is to figure out how you mobilize that 70, aren't the, 80%. Aren't the incentives misaligned in our political system? Because for those members in the House who have you know, strong Republican districts and only fair primaries, the, the incentives are not in place to uh, reward them for, for doing the what, what you would say is the right thing. I mean, it, isn't, that a, isn't there a structural problem? Well, the structural problem is that while gerrymandering has gone on forever in American politics, uh, you're right in suggesting, I think, that the Republicans have taken it to a whole new level. Uh, and in a very undemocratic way. And that's an issue we have to deal with as well. But let me repeat my point, whether you agree with me. I don't know. You you may not. But here's my point. Okay. My point is that the views that I am talking about represent, I believe, the views of the vast majority of the American people. The views of the Republican Party, which you can boil down to, let's cut Social Security or maybe privatize it. Very few people believe that. Let's give huge tax breaks to billionaires. I don't know anybody in the real world who believes that. Let's cut Medicare and Medicaid and federal aid to education. Most people don't believe that. So the political dynamic of the moment is the views that progressives hold. I'm not saying everyone, but most of the views are supported by the vast majority of the American people. The Republicans hold views that are supported by their large campaign donors. 
The dynamic is what Democrats have got to figure out is how we bring our people together to make the Republicans an offer they can't refuse. Do you ever take, have you ever taken positions that, uh, that, uh, in which you felt you had to compromise to reflect your constituents? You know, Barty Frank, uh, famously said the only politician I ever agreed with was myself the first time I ran. Uh, and you get his point. Uh, and I, I think of the issue of guns, uh, where you, you, you reflect your constituency. You haven't been, uh, down the line, certainly on the NRA, you voted for an assault weapons ban. You voted for uh, oh, down the line on the NRA. I've been opposed vigorously by the right, people right, in right. the state of Vermont. So but, that's like talking about but, being but, down the line. But, but you've also, you opposed the Brady. Uh, yeah, the because it did not have at that point an instant background check. I come from a state which, by the way, has had Democratic governors and Democratic senators whose views on these issues are the same as mine. Yeah. We come from a state. I don't raise it in, a, in an accusatory way. I'm right. just trying to get to. Under- and in fact, the votes that I took coming from the state that I come from were fairly courageous votes. I voted to ban certain types of assault weapons. That was not necessarily a popular vote in the state of Vermont. I thought it was the right vote. I voted for instant background checks, and I voted to end the gun show loophole. And I kind of think, actually, that where we are with the gun debate in America is you got two sides shouting at each other mm-hmm. and not listening to each other, mm-hmm. you know? And I think coming from a state which has virtually no gun control, but which is sensitive and understands that guns are something different here in Chicago than they are in Vermont, I think I can play a very effective role. In Would you have had together. the same position, uh, position if you were representing Brooklyn? That's a good question. And I suspect perhaps not. I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Back in the 90s, you served under Bill Clinton. Yes. Uh, and there are a lot of initiatives of his that you didn't support that you would call his signature initiative. Right. Welfare reform. Right. The Balanced Budget Act of 97. Right. Uh, you know, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall. Right. Uh, trade issues as well. Right. NAFTA. I think on many, look, I have a lot of respect for Bill Clinton. I think he did a lot of very good things. Uh, but I made some very, very important issues. He was dead wrong. On the, on the deregulation of Wall Street, he worked with right-wing, really right-wing Republicans like Alan Greenspan. You remember that famous picture of Bob Rubin and Alan Greenspan and Larry Rubin called Masters of the Universe? I know it was Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, or something like that. They deregulated Wall Street, which in my view, in my view, I know people disagree, helped lead to the crash of uh, 2008 and uh, bringing us the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. That was dead wrong. The trade agreements. Frankly, if George Bush had been reelected, we would not have had NAFTA because Democrats would have not had to cave in to a Democratic president. In my view, the trade agreements, NAFTA, CAFTA, PMTR with China, have been a disaster for this country, have lost us millions of decent paying jobs, Clinton was wrong on those issues. So, yeah, I did oppose him on some major initiatives. Now, you've been very assiduous in this race about not criticizing Hillary Clinton. You've been invited to do so on many occasions. I've seen you in, in many, many interviews. But on substantive matters, um, primary campaigns are about who best represents the values and traditions and uh, 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 of a party. Um do you have substantive differences with her that would suggest to you you would be a better tribune? Of course. I mean, I would not be running if that were not my belief. But what I have said is that I think one of the reasons so many people get turned off to politics today is these cheap, ugly, personal attacks, uh, these 
right. horrendous negative ads and stuff. I don't do that stuff. Right. Okay. But I would not be running, obviously, if I didn't have differences with Hillary Clinton and with the other candidates. So I think the first and broadest issue of difference is people have got to make a judgment that in a moment in American history, where we have a massive level of income and wealth inequality, where we have corporate America and Wall Street exercising extraordinary power over our economy and the political process, which candidate has the history and the ideas today to stand up to the big money interests? That is a very important fundamental question. you do and she does. I think that I do. I'll let the voters decide about well, implicit Hillary, in what you're saying. Look, yeah, implicit in what As I'm saying. You said you don't have pa- you don't take you don't have a pack. I do not have a super taking, pack, right? Your super pack, as right. I say, and you're not taking in money from large corporations. That's correct. I never have. Um, she I, does that. She does that. But do you think that's a compromising thing? You think? Yeah, I do. Uh, look, you know, I know every politician. Oh, yeah, you know, yes, the. Billionaires are giving me huge sums of money. They don't want anything. They just, they love democracy. But, you know, they're just giving me all this money for fun. Well, I'll let the voters decide how uh, true that is. But my history in taking on Wall Street, in calling for the breaking up of the major financial institutions, in repealing Glass-Steagall, in voting against the war uh, in Iraq, in being very clear that if we're serious about climate change, and transforming our energy system. No, we cannot support the Keystone Pipeline. I know that Secretary Clinton recently adopted that position. I was there from the very beginning. Trade agreements. No, the TPP is a bad idea and a continuation of bad uh, ideas. The USA Patriot Act, I voted against. Uh, the war in Iraq, uh, a, a huge vote. I listened to the evidence uh, from Bush and his administration. I voted no. Uh, Secretary Clinton voted yes. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. There's a lot of discussion now about Vice President Biden and whether he'll get in the race. He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. Yes. You have surged into... You know, a, a pretty strong second place here in these national polls. You're ahead in some polls in Iowa, ahead in all the polls in New Hampshire. Do you ever find yourself with all this Biden talk saying, what about Bernie? What's what's wrong with me? <laughs> Look, the last thing that I worry about is what the inside the Beltway folks and the pundits think. Uh, in many ways, of my campaign and I personally function outside their framework of reference. And I know they find it hard to believe that we are doing what we're doing. Because they talk to each other. You know, you know that. I mean, you live in that world where these guys, each one repeats what the other guy has. It's to an say. echo chamber. It's an echo chamber. Well, I get out in the real world. That's what I've done. I've done more town meetings in the state of Vermont than any elected official in the history of the state. I do those all over the country. I talk to real people. I think I have a sense of what's going on. So our success, while it is faster than I thought would have happened, what I would have told you four or five months ago when we were thinking about running is I think these ideas will resonate with the American people. I think the American people are sick and tired of a corrupt campaign finance system owned by billionaires. They are tired of an economic system where almost all of the income and wealth being generated today is going to the top 1%. It is happening faster than I thought. That I will concede. But what you know, the Wall Street Journal has to say or the New York Times has to say, I don't stay up nights worrying about so much. The... You said that it's happened faster than you. Uh, 
I mean, it's kind of astonishing. I mean, and I, I, I'm not making the ageist point here, but you're a 74 year old guy and we're headed to a university where there are 2000 kids waiting to hear from you. And there were, there were many, many more who couldn't get in the room. What the heck is happening? How is it that you're the pipe piper for these, for these kids? But it's not just the young people. It is young people. It, and, and I'm very gratified by that. I think there are young people are generally speaking idealistic. Um, they are rejecting, I think, a lot of the materialism, uh, and this every person for himself or herself, uh, way of life that many of their parents have accepted. Uh, they want to see a better world. They are concerned about ending discrimination in all forms. They are very concerned about the issue of climate change. They are very concerned by, you know, definition about making, uh, higher education affordable because many of the young people are going to leave school deeply in debt. So I think the, but, uh, O'Malley says these, all these things as well. Why are they following you? Well, I don't know. You'll have to ask them. I don't know. <laughs> uh, are you at all surprised by the reaction? Well, I've been surprised in general. You know, when we're going to be in... Well, how many selfies were you in before oh this whole thing started? Don't talk to me about selfies. Don't ask me for a selfie, David. I'm not going to I'm not gonna do that. Uh, uh, I have my agents taking photos. You can't even <laughs> see them uh, right now. Let me ask you one last thing. Yeah. Um, you, you kicked around a lot in the 70s before you got elected. You were writing, you were speaking. But, uh, the first, you know, you're basically... You're, your history of employment is largely as a public official. Well, not that. Yes, I know. No, before I became uh, mayor of the city of Burlington, I ran a very small, very small uh, nonprofit called the American People's Historical Society. And what we did is produce film strips. Remember what film strips were? I do. Before video for yes. young people. What they were, these photographs, and you know, went to the next photograph. And we did some uh, histories of the state of Vermont. We did some on New Hampshire, did some on Massachusetts. And we you know, made a living. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing that. I did one on the life of Eugene Depps. And I suspect if I had not won the race in Mayo, that's kind of doing historical video is probably uh, what I would be doing. But your about. life experience has been different than that of, uh, and, and not, you know, you haven't spent a lot of time in the private sector. You haven't spent a lot of, it, it hasn't been very varied in that regard. Is that a liability? And what is it about you that 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 would give people a sense that your experience would have been so broad that you well, have been broad? When you are the mayor of a city, I mean, I've been a mayor, I've been a congressman, I've been a United States senator. Uh, and when you're a mayor, for example, you get involved in everything. You learn how to, uh, what the most cost-effective way is to repave streets and sidewalks. Uh, you learn about housing and how to construct housing. You learn about childcare. You learn about the needs of senior citizens. You learn about healthcare. You learn about prescription drugs. You learn about a whole wide variety of issues. And I think my life experience has been a thing involved with the people, being a candidate who kind of comes from the ranks of the people, not from Wall Street, not from uh, the ivory tower, not from corporate America. And I think that is a good attribute to have. What do you hope to do here? Let's stipulate that you could be president of the United States and you may not be president of the United States. If you're not president of the United States, 
will this have been worthwhile? Yeah. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary experience. I mean, getting to meet great people in states all over America, uh, meeting all kinds of people. You know, by the time this is over, <laughs> it's not going to be a group in America uh, that uh, I have not met. And, and to hear people's concerns, how people view the world, uh, is, is, it's been uh, just a wonderful experience. And what impact do you think you can have even if you're not the nominee, do you, do you think you're impacting the debate? I think we are. I mean, I think uh, the issues that we are talking about, income and wealth, inequality, the disappearance of the American middle class, the need for us to join the rest of the world in terms of family and medical leave, in terms of a national health care program, in terms of public making public colleges and universities tuition-free, in terms of <laughs> racial justice, you know, in terms of immigration. Yeah, I, I think... When you are running for president, as you well know, you have a platform, uh, you have a bully pulpit uh, that can help force discussion on very important issues that often people would not like to talk about. Well, Senator, thank you. Uh, you're the first guest on this podcast, The Axe Files, and I can't think of a, a better person to uh, to kick off this series. So you're a public awaits, but uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, thank Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.